Welcome to episode 28 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. Security Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Turning to the news now, and the Level 2 Professional Security Operative Apprenticeship has received funding approval from central government through the Education and Skills Funding Agency. The news comes in the wake of approval for delivery being ratified by the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education back in May. The funding announcement has been made by the Private Security Industry Trailblazer Group and represents the culmination of three years' worth of diligent work transacted by employers and stakeholders alike right across the security sector in tandem with the Security Industry Authority. The new apprenticeship offers a route to employment for those wanting to join the private security industry and those already in employment who wish to progress in their career. In practice, the apprenticeship will be reviewed subsequent to the first three years of operation in the sector. The apprenticeship, for which external quality assurance is being delivered by Ofqual, will provide funded opportunities for professional training in core security skills and allow employees to choose a specialism, operational security operative, cash and valuables in transit, mobile security patrol or security control room operative. The professional security operative apprenticeship is available here in the UK. In Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, employers seeking to access apprenticeship funding should approach their local apprenticeship funding body. Apprenticeship levy payers in England, i.e. those employers in the private or public sector with an annual wage bill of more than £3 million, will for the first time be able to use their levy to pay for high quality training for their private security operatives. Mark Williams, Security Operations Manager for the Parliamentary Security Department and also Chair of the Private Security Industry Trailblazer Group, responsible for developing the apprenticeship, stated, I'm really pleased that the hard work of employers and others has paid off. This is a major step forward for the industry. This apprenticeship will address some of the workforce issues that we have in play by helping to attract new talent to the industry, in addition to assisting in the retention and development of existing members of staff. I'm extremely proud of the tenacity and collaboration shown by members of the Private Security Industry Trailblazer Group in a bid to help professionalise the industry. Heather Bailey, the Chair of the Security Industry Authority, also commented, We are really pleased to have supported the Private Security Industry Trailblazer Group to achieve this outcome. It's another great example of the progress that can be made when industry collaborates on skills issues with our support. Hopefully this development represents a further step along the way towards making the private security industry a career of choice. An all-new register setting out the government's latest assessment of key risks posed to the UK has been published as part of ongoing cross-government work designed to better prepare the public and the business community for the threats facing the nation. Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden has unveiled the 192-page National Risk Register, itself an assessment of the risks facing the UK. The National Risk Register outlines no fewer than 89 threats that would have a significant impact on the UK safety, security or critical systems at a national level. This latest version of the National Risk Register is described as being more transparent than ever before and publicly shares previously classified information about a number of potential risks. These include disruption to energy supplies following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, malicious uses of drones to disrupt transport and other critical operations, and threats posed to undersea transatlantic telecommunications cables used for the internet and communications. The government has robust plans in place for each of the different risks and is also urging businesses, local government and voluntary groups alike to play their part in helping to plan for them. By publishing an online digital tool for the first time, the government is making risk details more accessible and easier to navigate. In fact, the National Risk Register's publication is the latest example of the transparent whole society approach being taken towards national resilience, which itself was set out in the recently published UK Government Resilience Framework and the National Cyber Strategy. It also follows on from the recent launch of the UK-wide Emergency Alert System. 
Oliver Dowden commented, this is the most comprehensive risk assessment we've ever published so that government and our partners can put robust plans in place and be ready for anything. Dowden went on to state, one of those rising risks is energy security. We've installed the first turbine at the future world's largest offshore wind farm, which will provide secure, low cost and clean energy for the British people and enable us to stand up to Putin's energy ransom. The publication of the new National Risk Register follows on from the government's outlining plans to tackle various risks outlined within it. In June, the government published the Biological Security Strategy to strengthen the UK's defences against biological threats, such as infectious diseases. Government has also issued the Resilience Framework, which emboldens the coordinating structures employed by the UK to prepare for emergencies. Matt Collins, the Deputy National Security Advisor, has commented, A comprehensive understanding of the risk we face is critical for keeping the UK safe. This edition of the National Risk Register, which is based on the government's internal and classified risk assessment, offers even more detail on the potential scenarios, response and recovery options relating to the risks facing the UK. These range from terrorism right through to conflicts and natural disasters. As an organisation, Resilience First comprises upwards of 600 major businesses operating in the UK across multiple sectors, in turn providing the ways and means to drive resilience at scale. Chair and Board Director Rick Cudworth explained, We welcome the new National Risk Register. It's a vital resource for improving the UK's resilience, and it really does deliver on providing greater transparency as well as a developed and shared understanding of the risks we all face. Providing invaluable information, this document gives us the power to invest, prepare and respond more effectively. With more detail than previously, and with specific scenarios, assumptions and response capabilities set out, we encourage organisations and resilience professionals alike to use it to stress test and strengthen their own resilience. Our first guests on this edition of the Security Matters podcast are Tony Porter OBE and Dr Nicole Benjamin Fink. Tony is Chief Privacy Officer at Coresight AI, a role that he's occupied since 2021. For the six years prior to that appointment, Tony served as the Surveillance Camera Commissioner for England and Wales. An OBE, the proud holder of the Queen's Police Medal and a Bachelor of Law, Tony served in the Greater Manchester Police and has also worked in the private sector at Barclays Bank in the role of Head of Physical Security Intelligence. Nicole is the founder of Conservation Beyond Borders, itself an international team of associates, fellows and other strategic partners, bringing specialist skills and technology to the fore in order to assist with a range of wildlife conservation projects. During our interview, the duo concentrate on the use of facial recognition technology and its role in law enforcement. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Tony. Uh, you've referenced the EU Parliament's proposed blanket ban on the use of live facial recognition technology as being irresponsible. Can you quickly outline why you favour regulation and safeguards as the best way forward? Yes, yeah, sure. I, I think the EU Parliament is taking an extreme position. It's certainly one that uh, isn't supported, to my understanding, by law enforcement across Europe. And I don't believe it's supported by the majority of uh, the citizens in Europe. Talking bans is easy. But regulation allows us to uh, steer the development and deployment of technology as a force for good. There's a lot of danger out there. There is a lot of uh, ability that law enforcement can use this technology to support not just them, but us. And I think talk of bans, uh, it just doesn't sit easily with me. Uh, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. How extensive is the illegal wildlife trade and how is it connected to human trafficking? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, The poaching crisis has indeed left the shores of Asia and Africa and has a global effect. The illegal wildlife trade is the fourth biggest illegal activity worldwide, only behind arms, drugs and human trafficking. And it is run right now by criminal syndicates. 
It's worth around $23 billion. It circulates that amount annually. And because it is so valuable to certain people, it leaves behind a trail of destruction, which is really impacting negatively our world, the biodiversity, and the habitat. In fact, the sad truth is that there is a link between the poaching crisis, particularly the smuggling of illegal goods, and human trafficking. Children um, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, are still being sold into slavery, and they're practically used as mules to carry these illegal commodities across borderlines. In fact, I've talked to specifically these uh, handlers and smugglers that verified that data with me. And so when they reach the border of a certain place, they kidnap kids that live in adjunct villages and they cross the border. Nobody suspects them. Um, and then the sad truth is that once across the border, they, quote unquote, to use their words, dispose of the children into the sex trade. And to use my words or everybody that's probably listening, um, lives of these children are lost forever. And what impact would a ban on the use of facial recognition technology have on your important work, Nicole, which is designed to deter criminal gangs and bring the perpetrators of crime to justice? So our work really does uh, rely heavily on stopping these criminal syndicates in their steps, which means um, on true time. So just to give you an example, in 2011, we saw 720 convictions by poachers, by people that were uh, smuggling illegal wildlife commodities. And then by 2020, we increased that to 1,400, which is really attributed to the smart use of technology that enables us to be more efficient and more impactful. And so if we would have a true time uh, facial recognition software that we could use, of course, it would always be under the guidelines and the usage and operation of humans. It would allow us to skip that process of analyzing the data and the intelligence and really just to detect real time what's going on. In other words, the facial recognition software solves for months of intelligence gathering on foot. And by kind of bridging that gap of months of work, we would be able to detect the illegal activities right away and stop the smuggling of these children on the right side of the border, which has a huge effect because when these children are actually detected on the right side of the border, they just go home to their families. When they're detected on the other side of the border, just before they're sold into the sex trade, they go into the system before they get back to the families. And if I would just say, I'd like to add that if we do nothing and the ban on facial recognition continues, I feel like we waive our social responsibility right to work towards saving every child in the most efficient way and time sensitive manner. And some commentators have suggested a compromise that facial recognition tech be retained as an option for law enforcement, but only retrospectively and with a warrant. Why do you believe this approach is misguided, Nicole? If we consider the time-sensitive manner in which people are using children to smuggle illegal wildlife goods across the border, after the fact, the facial recognition can help, but what we're trying to avoid is 
arresting these people already after the children are lost. So the use of facial recognition after the fact helps the authorities to understand what exactly happened to a victim, but long after they've already been sold and been lost to their families and essentially their life being destroyed. However, on the flip side, the live facial recognition actually gives them an opportunity to intervene before it's too late. So I see this as a simple difference, and I think that people can relate to this, that the true time really does have the potential to save lives. And if I was any European politician, I actually find it very hard to justify a blanket ban to the families of those affected and to the young lives of those that are being destroyed. And reverting to you now, Tony, how would you address people's concerns about alleged inaccuracy and bias in relation to this technology? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. And actually, before I go into that, I just want to underline what Nicole has just said. Um, Apart from the fact that there's such powerful arguments that this software should be used to help protect us, the public have a view as well. And overwhelmingly across the UK and America, the public support the use of facial recognition in lifetime when there's serious offences at stake. And I don't think Nicole had, could have pointed out more serious offences than human trafficking. But in direct answer to your question about inaccuracy and bias, there's a lot of myths that exist about facial recognition. This is an AI software that has developed rapidly over the last 10 years. And what I will say now is, whereas previously people said that they were inaccurate or there was an unfairness within the software, that is now a myth. My own company, CoreSight, we benchmark at the highest level in terms of reducing bias to indiscernible levels. That is the international testing standard. And that actually now demonstrates that we've got a very powerful but very fair software. We also look at the accuracy element. Uh, Our software operates at 99.8% accuracy. Now, you imagine trying to monitor 100,000 people looking for one child trafficker. A human eye can't do that, but our software can. So this is now moving to a very serious challenge, I think, not just to the European parliamentarians that want to ban it on behalf of the EU citizens, but actually I think the challenge is for the EU citizens to, to turn around say, well, actually, we don't agree. We see the value in this. Put guardrails around it, but we see the value in this. And that's the argument that I want to put over. Very, very effectively supported, in my view, by Nicole's arguments. And finally, Tony, you, of course, wrote the current guidelines for UK law enforcement on the legal, ethical and responsible use of facial recognition technology. What specific safeguards do you think the European Union should be prioritising now? Well, I have actually written to the MEPs, commissioners and the council, pointing them in the direction of that guidance. The issues are that the public have a right to demand that the software being used on their behalf by law enforcement is transparent. They need to tell people what they're doing and why they're doing, and then also explain what the performance is. Did it work? Did we catch the right guys? We need perhaps ethical bodies of oversight that will support that use, that will provide support and direction to chief officers so that they do not use the software indiscriminately. In my guidance, I also strongly recommended a form of oversight, and that's now been picked up by many regulators and jurisdictions globally. A form of oversight or quasi-judicial oversight where there is a requirement for law enforcement to operate within the guardrails. What are they? Well, to make sure that the scope of your search isn't too wide, to make sure that the people on your database 
that you're looking for is justifiable so that there isn't what civil rights activists call a chilling effect on society. Let's have a more focused effect. And actually, I'll point to uh, a very famous Court of Appeal case in uh, the UK that I was part of, where the justices actually said the, the Article 8, the privacy impact is actually minor considering most facial recognition software disposes of a search that hasn't hit a match on the database. You know, they'll keep that for 0.01 of a millisecond. So that's just four of the guidelines that for effective compliant use, for use that will generate trust within the community that we can use this software. So let's regulate it. Let's not ban it because if we ban it, the arguments that Nicole has put forward uh, would hit a a brick wall and, and nobody wants to see that. In further news, secured by design, itself part of the Police Crime Prevention Initiative's portfolio squarely aimed at crime reduction, has just published its Commercial Guide 2023. This document is the latest in its series of new or updated design guides. For the first time, the Commercial Guide is divided into gold, silver and bronze award gradations. In essence, the Secured by Design Commercial Guide 2023 provides design guidance and specification requirements for commercial premises in a bid to reduce the risks of crime, such as acts of burglary, theft, arson, assault and vehicle crime perpetrated against the person or property. The scope of the document ranges from new schemes through to refurbishments of existing buildings and encapsulates both commercial developments where members of the public have no formal access, e.g. a factory or an office building, and those where public access is integral to commercial use. Such locations would include retail premises, leisure centres, warehouses and public service buildings. Such developments may range in size from a single unit with a defined use to a group of buildings with multiple uses. The Secured by Design Commercial Guide 2023 is said to be the most comprehensive publication of its type to date. It features contributions from a wide range of individuals, among them police designing out crime officers, members of the Fire and Rescue Service, trade and industry experts, access control professionals, local authority and building control practitioners, and professors in the academic arena. Michael Brook, the Deputy Chief Operating Officer at Police Crime Prevention Initiatives, has observed the Secured by Design Commercial Guide outlines a practical level of risk and sustainable security measures which are compatible and sympathetic to successful business. The majority of crimes committed on commercial premises are related to property, as modern business uses an array of desirable and easily transportable goods for the ready market. Plants, raw materials, laptops and many other valuable assets are included here. Brooke continued, among other crime types to be considered when designing commercial properties are vandalism, graffiti, robbery, assaults on staff members and cybercrime. Included in the latter will be the Internet of Things, which is covered in the Cybercrime and the Internet of Things section. Further, Brooke noted, it's our intention to continually update this guide as a result of further consultations with partners, signalling new iterations of standards and improved styles of applying designing out crime methods such that communities will be protected from crime for years to come. Brooke concluded, it's vital that the benefits of a new secured by design commercial development are complemented with a clear management and maintenance programme, together with a business continuity and resilience plan, which will further promote a safe working environment. The Secured by Design Commercial Guide 2023 is applicable to all secured by design applications made after the 1st of August this year. Our next guest on this episode is Satya Rai, recently appointed as Head of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging at Securitas UK. In parallel, Satya also serves as the CEO of the International Professional Security Association. Satya won the Institute of Strategic Risk Management Young Professional of the Year Award in 2022 and boasts an extensive career in the security profession, which itself began on the front line over 26 years ago. 
Dutia's progression from the front line has led her into management and leadership roles within both the public and private sectors at the operational and strategic levels. She has a strong track record of leading transformational change within the security sector and is an equality, diversity and inclusion pioneer. On this occasion, Dutia maps out her new role at Securitas and also examines the key priorities for the security business sector in times ahead. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Satya. How are you settling into your new role at Securitas UK? Uh, Well, Brian, thank you for um, approaching me to do this podcast because it is something that's out of my comfort zone. But, you know, if it means that we're getting important messages out to our community, then, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. So, yeah, the new role has been an absolute dream. Brian, I'm absolutely delighted, proud to be part of the Securitas family and the welcome that I've had from Sean, the CEO for Securitas Europe and Sarah Hayes, the HR director and the the leadership team from across the business has been really fantastic. Why did you choose Securitas as a business? Brian, I think that this journey with Securitas actually started over 12 months ago and it was it was such a natural progression uh, for me to come into this role. Um, last year I was putting together the uh, London Pride collaboration um, where we saw the, the the security industry come together for the first time to celebrate diversity inclusion, specifically its LGBTQ community. And Securitas were approached um, without any hesitation. They were absolutely key, pivotal and supportive of the collaboration. But previous to that, a week before that, uh, the London Pride team had actually approached me for some support around security coverage because we had a high profile visit from the Norway politicians, because sadly they had been subjected to a terrorist attack just a few days before their main Oslo pride. And actually, as a result, they had to call it off. And in commemoration, um, the London pride team, you know, in solidarity, were going to put da- put together a vigil. Sadiq Khan was present and so on, etc. And I had less than 24 hours to, to gain some support, to get some security coverage to, to support this vigil and um, to support the LGBT community and to support the the community of London and Securitas. I had some colleagues and friends that work at Securitas and Sean, Sarah, um, the team, uh, without, like I said, again, any hesitation, said absolutely we support it. There was no budget for this um, coverage and Securitas supported the entire event without any cost. And, and that is just just admirable and since then we've collaborated on some really key people initiatives we were together at the international women's day event this year which again was a, a massive success so it just was the natural decision for me to make and when sarah and sean approached me about the role i was absolutely uh, jumping for joy because i already felt like i was part and parcel of the team already talk us through some of the key equality diversity and inclusion priorities at securitas uk Absolutely. Um, Brian, you know, we're very uh, people focused and our network groups 
are a fantastic place to start. And um, we have four great network groups, the Can Do Network Group, which is for our neurodiverse and disability professionals. We have the Assimilation Network Group, which is for our Black, Asian and ethnic minority professionals. We have the Pride at Securitas uh, Network, which is for the LGBTQ community and our security professionals from that, that community. So these are fantastic groups spaces, safe spaces for our teams to to celebrate each other, to talk about some of the issues they have in the workplace and to come together on a regular basis to raise awareness about the various groups, what they do. And all the groups are supported from C-suite level down. Um, Sean Kennedy attends all these network groups that take place throughout the year for Securitas inclusion and belonging is an everyday strategy. And our recent survey where we had more employees feedback regarding how they uh, are included and how they belong at Securitas. Uh, More people, you know, completed the survey this year than they did last year. Obviously, we always look at that and think, you know, we want to do more with it. But the survey results are key. They are proud to announce that they're heading in the right direction. Always, you know, any business or organisation will think that there's more to do but you know these stats figures from our individuals and this is feedback from our teams our people on the ground that are saying that do you know what we we enjoy working at Securitas these are the reasons why and this is what actually we still need to be doing better so the survey the results getting that out showing that amongst our entire portfolio of people is is key growing our network groups and growing the network groups as well so we are adding three more network groups to our um, existing network group so fantastic these these groups are all run by our you know our teams they're all for the teams and Securitas accommodates the meetings the get-togethers the celebrations and everything so it is not just about bringing people together it's about accommodating that making sure that people are able to attend these and then there's follow-ups and then there's actions as a result and so on everything that the entire loop gets gets closed off at Securitas. I'm also part of the skills board. Uh, Securitas are also part of the skills board. So that is, again, another key initiative that we are involved in, in terms of professionalising the industry that we're all, all so passionate about, Brian. So lots of industry collaborations taking place at the moment. Now, you've mentioned one or two of them there, but are you involved in any of these yourself, apart from the skills board one? I'm the Pride uh, collaboration this year. Just to put this into perspective, Brian, last year we had just over 10, between 10 and 12 uh, organisations, companies take part in the collaboration. And this year it's 32 plus. So it's an outstanding, you know, fact to share. And that's because, you know, we're moving on and, uh, you know, we all as an industry accept that people piece, that belonging piece is absolutely crucial in terms of what the skills board actually are trying to achieve and the profession map. So we know that that belonging piece is key. So these sort of tie in. And and then I'm also part of the stakeholder forum with the SIA. Again, that's collaborative working across the industry, being led by the SIA. I can share with you that we've recently created an EDI forum, which will see more collaborative work with an output of a standard, a central focal point 
for everyone in our industry to look at this um, information in terms of, you know, how do we become inclusive? How do we create a culture across not just the big companies or the some of the companies? We want to get this across the board. How do we create an environment in our industry where it's the norm, it becomes the norm? So I'm delighted to announce that I'll be co-chairing with the BSIA, uh, the EDI Forum, and the first meeting takes place on Friday. And, you know, that will be the industry working together to create something special for everybody across our industry in terms of inclusion and belonging. So, yeah, a lot of work in the pipeline. But these are just some of the the key collaborative um, initiatives that I'm involved in and leading, Brian. Thinking about the sector as a whole, what do you believe are the key priorities going forward? Well, I think that um, the successful implementation of Martin's Law is key. This is what Fegan and Nick have achieved today is absolutely fantastic and now key piece and part to all this will be the implementation of it so we've got to position ourselves as an industry to successfully make this happen you know I really do believe it's key in saving lives going forward I also believe that the skills board is is a game changer and that will go hand in hand in what we're trying to achieve with Martin's Law in terms of the capability-based career development training a framework where we can understand what good performance looks like and you know the industry it, it needs to change to become a profession of choice I want to hear more people within our industry talking about this is a choice that I made many years ago and it's a conscious decision that I made to join this industry so these I think these are just some of the key priorities for our industry in the next 12 to 18 months. What's in the pipeline for you across the next 12 months? Well in, I think I've sort of I'll touched on some of these and already in my previous answers but internally uh, from a perspective with Securitas it's to continue to create a workplace culture where you know where all our teams can be their entire selves in a workplace and you know we have a our strategy around people is always evolving always changing and we, we all have a shared vision of you know making sure that we do right by our people so there are very you know internally there's a lot of focus around the people people peace and so on and that will then lead on to everything else as a result of what happens when you get that belonging piece right the impact it will have on the growth of Securitas not just uh, Securitas UK but globally will be will be fantastic and then externally um, I'm also CEO for the International Professional Security Association I will utilise and that impact and influence that I've had at IPSA has been quite unique and I'm uh, I, I want to continue to draw on that to drive that collaborative piece across the industry because Brian since we've been doing that honestly changes that I've been seeing the feedback that I'm seeing the businesses that want to be involved and want to drive change talk about the challenges we have together lots more still to do but I believe collaboratively together industry will go from strength to strength and we do that by enabling equipping the most important part of that equation and that's our and that's our people so lots you know with uh, some of the things I've already talked to you about that will be our focus for the next 12 months is continue to grow that collaborative piece from across the industry Brian
The National Cyber Security Centre has announced a change to its Assured Cyber Incident Response Scheme with the introduction of a new level. From now on, companies assured to offer cyber incident response services will be designated Level 1 or Level 2, meaning that core companies will be able to provide high-quality incident response services to a wider range and larger number of victim organisations across the UK. The National Cyber Security Centre's Cyber Incident Response Scheme is well established and assists those organisations experiencing a cyber attack to quickly and easily identify trusted providers of commercial incident response response services. These assured companies support organisations to investigate and recover from a cyber attack and advise on the prevention of future attacks. Until now, the Cyber Incident Response Scheme has focused on assuring companies that can provide incident response services to organisations, running networks of national significance, such as central governments, critical national infrastructure organisations and regulated industries. These organisations are at particular risk of targeted and complex attacks organised by nation-state actors. All Level 1 assured service providers are capable of dealing with all types of cyber incident for all types of organisations. The National Cyber Security Centre strongly encourages organisations running networks of national significance to contact a Level 1 company if they experience a cyber attack. It's particularly important that all organisations use a cyber response Level 1 provider if they think they've been the victim of a highly sophisticated attack episode. Level 2 companies are assessed as being capable of supporting most organisations with common cyber attacks, such as those involving ransomware. This includes private sector organisations outside of critical national infrastructure sectors, charities, local authorities and smaller public sector organisations. Speaking about the new scheme, Chris Enser, the Deputy Director of Cyber Growth at the National Cyber Security Centre, said falling victim to a cyber attack is really stressful. Finding someone with the skills and knowledge to help can also be a difficult task if, like many, the searching party is not familiar with the cybersecurity world. Enter continued, for many years now, we've assured cyber incident response services for organisations targeted by the most sophisticated threat actors. I'm particularly pleased that we can now assure a similar service for any organisations affected by criminal threat actors. It's a service that will be good enough for the majority of incidents facing smaller organisations. The National Cybersecurity Centre badge will afford confidence that the company whose services are employed has a right expertise in place to assist. Our final guest on this edition is Stuart Galloway, the Senior Associate at WSG Associates, the company providing business and education support services across the security sector. Stuart is both a coach and mentor, as well as a keen developer of training policy and strategies. He's involved with curriculum development and course design, and also the implementation of recruitment strategies. For the purposes of the Security Matters podcast, Stuart's main focus is the training piece, and most notably ways in which to enhance levels of knowledge, understanding and skills exhibited by individual members of today's security teams. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Are we witnessing a continued progression when it comes to the initial training provided for security operatives, do you feel? Absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, if we look back to before SIA licensing, circa 2003-2004, and to where we are now, absolutely no doubt. We now have qualified trainers, qualified assessors, qualified IQAs, internal quality assurers. We have structured minimum mandatory training. And also now with the recent reforms, which are probably going to be reformed in a couple of, you know, next year or two, is we've got more importance on the assessment and the internal quality assurance of those courses. So there's absolutely no doubt in my mind we're in a better place than where we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago from the introduction of the SIA licence and before. So there's absolutely no doubt in my mind in that one, Brian. And do you believe that the initial security industry authority license link training provides enough assurance that individuals entering the security industry are equipped with the right levels of knowledge and understanding? A base level entry level, yes. Is it perfect? Absolutely. By no means, no, it's not. Is there much more we can do? Yes, there is. 
But that's not within probably the remit of the SIA, if I'm brutally honest, that's down to employers. And, and we'll probably chat about that later on. But one of the things I'll throw back there is, I know this is about public safety and, and whatnot, right? But is there any other industry that have the same stringent prerequisites to actually get a license as we have in security? Now, if I look at the care industry, for example, and we're talking about people's lives here as well, more so than the security industry in some ways, right? There are allegedly minimum qualifications to be in care, but they don't have the same mandatory prerequisites to become a carer. I'm trying to link this to other sectors that are quite critical, and I'm still convinced that we have the base level almost correct. It can be improved. There's no doubt about it. Always be approved, Brian, right? But have we got it wrong? No, we haven't. Are we improving it? Yes, we are. And what can be done to improve the levels of knowledge, understanding and skills exhibited by today's security personnel, Stuart? When we look at the next review of the SIA licence link development, which is probably due any time in the next six to 18 months, when we think about the five-year cycle that's involved for the licence link stuff, we, we have to, and it has started to be happening, but we have to look at more specific common themes in the roles of security operatives. So we need to really have a proper review and contextualise and this is a personal view here in that there's too many overlaps in initial roles. So what was 2015 stuff that came out from the SIA was a common unit. That's kind of carried on and been expanded with the principal working in the private security industry. I think that should be the base level qualification for a security operative. And if you want them to go and do, do those supervision, CCTV, close protection and whatever, then that need, they need to be additional units. So we need to focus on the core initial training, if that makes sense, right? So we need to contextualise it. The industry needs to take a long, hard look at itself and what it expects to achieve. And I'm going to use some old adages now, right, about wages and charge rates. The thing for me is if you pay minimum, you will get minimum. The industry has, for years, worked in this sort of process of let's get the job, let's get the job no matter what. However, I always think, and Brian, you've heard this, you've heard this for many years as well. It's a race to the bottom. People, I hear people talking about security as a, a grudge purchase, right? And and they're right in some ways, but that's security business's own fault. But I can link that to training and development because training and development from security companies does become a grudge purchase. When we think about the, the Private Security Industry Act, is it actually fit for purpose now? I'm not convinced it is, because I don't think it has been reviewed since it was incepted in 2001, off the top of my head, which links me to a third thing, which is a bit tricky and complicated in many ways, right? Because of the PSIA, let's remember this act is over 20 years old now, and the primary legislation has never been revised or amended in that period as far as I know. And there's a word used by the SIA saying about um, competency in the workplace, the only way you can prove competency is by having workplace assessments. You can prove initial an initial entry to the industry, not a problem with, with what we have just now. If you want to prove uh, workplace training and assessment for security practitioners, there has to be some sort of workplace assessment done to do that. So a personal view for me is, and this unfortunately isn't in the PSIA, is we issue a license initially for 12 months. Once confirmation of that individual has been competent within a 12-month period, the license can be extended for a far two years. So we're not we're not we're not degrading the, the, the amount of time the license is there for, and we're not saying the learning has to be regulated or whatever, right? It just has to be some sort of confirmation sign-off that this person is competent. So we're not adding additional burden 
And when talk turns towards the ongoing development of security personnel, where does the responsibility lie, do you feel? This is quite easy again, Brian. It's collective responsibility. So it's a responsibility of the individual, the employer and the client. Again, I'm going back to this. Sadly, I think it's in many ways a race to the bottom in terms of developing staff. Employers must take the initiative in terms of charge rates and margins to make sure they've got the appropriate charge rates and margins to develop this app. Now, there are a lot of great companies out there who try to do this and do this in a reasonably good way. But, you know, we also often have to think about developing security personnel is too often security is deemed a, a second or third career. And there are some shifts now for, for younger people coming into the industry. And there was a recent SIA survey that I've not got to hand just now that shows that there are improving younger people entering the industry, sort of 19 to 24, which is really positive. But if I, if I go back to how we develop these staff, we need to have a clear career progression. But that can't be stipulated and mandatory in some ways, because that needs to be down to the business, that needs to be down to the individual. And, you know, so so we can have all the career paths we want, which are a lot clearer now than when I first joined the industry, and when you first came into the industry as well. But we just need to think about how can we get talent into the industry earlier and make that a career? Not everybody will get a degree at some stage in their life, Brian. But we need to encourage younger people coming into the industry, male and female. And the fact is, I don't think employers do enough. I'm going to use an old phrase here, on-the-job training, which is kind of linked to developing the people. And in your view, why is it so important for security businesses to develop their staff? The first answer to that, Brian, is quite simple. Why shouldn't they? I'm going to link this to retention, first and foremost. And then I'm going to think about, when you think of Richard Branson, right, a quote from Richard Branson was about train people well enough so they can leave. Treat them well enough so they don't want to leave. We have too much of a churn in the security industry. Do we train them well enough? In the outset, maybe. If I link back to the last question, Brian, the ongoing training, maybe not well enough. But if we treat them well enough, they'll want to stay as well. So if you add those one and one makes two. Again, thinking of another quote uh, by Henry Ford, the only worst thing that training your employees and having them leave is not training them and having them stay. That's a massive statement. That's probably even more than Richard Branson's statement. If you've not trained your employees and not developed your employees, do you have all sorts of employees there that are probably not as effective as they should be or could be? And that you know, just concerns me. And if you remember, actually, Brian, back in, in your first days when you were at uh, SMT, I wrote an article about lip service is about what, what employers done for training. And uh, the thing is, I don't think that's, that's changed much in the last 20 years on that. I just think the lip service has got a lot better by some employers. But I still go back to, if you don't train people, if I use Richard Branson's quote and Henry Ford's quote, if you don't train people, we don't know what's going to happen. They're likely to stay. And if they move on, they're maybe moving on for a progression. And as an employer, previously, I see that as a win. Disappointing, but a win. And what's the role of the awarding organisations in all of this, Stuart? Well, quite simple answer is they, they provide some assurance about the qualification being awarded and being fit for purpose through their external quality assurance means. But it also provides individuals with you know a regulated certificate to support their entrance to the market. Because without that regulated certificate, there's no interest in the market. Almost quite similar to the, the DVSA uh, where for MOT stuff. Without your annual certificate, and it's an annual certificate you have to get as, a, as somebody who does MOTing, you cannot do MOTs unless you have that annual certificate. So the AOs 
play a huge process in this matter, and it's all about some. It's all about assurance in is a qualification fit for purpose. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Tony Porter of Coresight AI, Dr. Nicole Benjamin Fink from Conservation Beyond Borders, Satya Rai of Securitas, and also Stuart Galloway from WSG Associates for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsor, The Security Event. The security event runs from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024 at the NEC in Birmingham. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymattersmagazine.com, where you can access all of our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions of the podcast. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters and access our LinkedIn page at Security Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.